Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. So, you okay? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, hey, Phil, how are you going? How, how about uh, if you just introduce yourself and tell us what you're up to at the moment? Sure. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, so I'm a, um, I have a joint position between Monash University and Cabrini Health. I'm Director of Nursing Research at Cabrini. I'm an Associate Professor at, at Monash University and I tend to call myself a, um, a nurse who does health research. And um, most of my research, well all of my research I've got to say at the moment is related to in healthcare associated infection and infection prevention. And that's because that's where my nursing background has been, um, working in infection prevention roles in a number of hospitals and then both at a state and national level. And it's just, for me, infection prevention has always been one of the things I've been able to get. In all the medical science, in everything that's in medical science, infection prevention's just always seemed like a logical, plausible um, notion to me. So. I have a lot of interest in there and, and um, currently doing a number of research projects in that space. When you were on the clinical side of things, were you one of the infection control CNCs? Or? Yeah, so I, I uh, spent about 10 years at Alfred Hospital, one of the big hospitals in Melbourne. Um, in infection prevention there and had some great mentors and some really inspirational people that I, that I worked with and um, also worked in a couple of other uh, big healthcare facilities in that space as well. When, when did you become a nurse? What year did you start? Were you registered? Uh, so I'm one of those uh, dinosaurs, Cliff, who uh, was trained in a hospital and um, my... Um, my group was 383, so we commenced in October 1983 and graduated in October 1986. Okay, so only a year or two before me, because I was one of the first um, university groups to go oh. through. Yeah, we were the ones who everybody said, well, how can you learn nursing in how any university? How could that possibly be? <laughs> <laughs> Great, so um, welcome to This Emergency Life. Um, it's been great for you to come in and I completely understand that your area of expertise isn't the emergency department as such. However, at the moment, um, the, worlds of, the world of emergency care and infection control have, uh, the interplay between those has become a lot more important um, since probably January this year. So I wonder if I could start off by talking about some of the prep that we've been doing in emergency departments over the last um, few years, um, our ADs, ICUs, and even, you know, of course, all of the acute care areas around Australasia have been planning and implementing pretty major um, uh, preparations for COVID-19 influxes. So, you know, waiting for, you know, we, the people used to say they're waiting for the tide or waiting for the... Um, tsunami to arrive. In so much as you can say, as a member of the infection control expert group um, for COVID-19 and the National COVID Clinical Evidence Task Force um, Steering Committee, what are your thoughts on um, if and when 
we might be required to implement these changes in, in full swing? So we, we, we had a really good practice run, I think, um, because, um, you know, at the start when in late January, early February, I distinctly remember because I was trying to have a holiday and the phone kept ringing. And, um, you know, the, the threats at that time was the potential of the demand on our hospital system was going to be overwhelming. And so, you know, hospitals cleared out floors and turned them into intensive care units. Um, the, the collaboration between private and public sector facilities um, flourished um, so healthcare services could continue to provide for, for patients. Um, so the reality is that we never actually saw those, all those facilities utilised, um, certainly. Uh, and that's not particular to Australia. I've got a, a colleague who works in London and he helped set up the Nightingale Health Services, which was the big exhibition hall, and they populated it with um, something like 4,000 intensive care unit beds ready to take it all on. And so far, I think, well, they've closed it down now, but they only had an influx of about 60 patients in there. So, um, it, which is a good thing, you don't, it, which, which means things, things are working. So I think from what I believe, what it means now is that we know that we can do it. We can ramp up, we have the we have the space and we have the skills and we have the processes um, ready to ramp up when we need to, if we need to. Now, whether or not it happens with this particular affection, I don't know. Um, if you're a Victorian, then we're a little bit anxious at the moment because we're certainly seeing a, uh, a second wave, uh, which I don't think has crested quite yet. And um, uh, but still, we're fortunately we're not seeing those hospital admissions and those ICU bed demands. So if it's not for this infection, then it could be for what a, an old, a colleague used to call TNV, which was the next virus. And we don't know when that's going to hit, but we need to be ready for it. So at the very least, I guess this has been a really good dress rehearsal. Yeah, and, and I guess not only for clinical areas and, and healthcare, but also for the community as well. It's really given them a good insight into what it's like to, to do this and what sort of things need to happen. Um, you know, uh, South Korea at the beginning of this were a real poster child for how you um, how you keep your community informed and that really works because they were used to it from the previous um, epidemic. Um you um, you mentioned there uh, at towards the end about the next virus um, and that it's been good preparation um, for all clinical areas um, and I guess we worry about particular viruses being able to jump from person to person bird flu being probably one of the most concerning ones or well I think um, you know the 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 most concerning ones have been the coronaviruses, SARS, MERS, and, and now COVID. And um, my, my understanding is that that's where the concern continues to be moving forward um, with the coronavirus. So they're still, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been 10 years since SARS, which is a long time when you think it feels like 
um, not that long ago, but, but um, it is 10 years. And it's a reasonable question to ask, um, did we actually learn anything from it? Did, were we prepared for it? And I suspect the answer might be we didn't learn enough from it and we didn't prepare um, as well as we should for the next one. And we really didn't suffer serious consequences from SARS here in Australia. So I think this has been, has taken that threat an extra level. And we now know what life could look like um, with a really serious, overwhelming viral threat. And uh, I think it's it now behoves us to, to do and, uh, and, and devote a lot more resources into preparedness for the future. Yeah, um, it, it actually does feel like a very distant memory when we were dealing with um, SARS in, what year was that, Phil? 2010. Wow, okay. Say, yeah. it, it feels like it was in <clears throat> 2002 or something. It feels like such a long time. And my faded memory of it is that it was a minor inconvenience in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. You know, we set up um, uh, testing clinics just down the road, those sorts of things. But it certainly didn't generate the amount of feverish preparation as, as we have uh, this time around. Which kind of brings me to a question that um, more of an observation and then a question. Um, the emergency departments in Australasia typically run at a particularly um, high rate of demand for care. In the last few months, um, I've seen my emergency colleagues uh, experience such a range of uh, workflow and workload fluctuations, and indeed they've had pretty personal responses to, to this in terms of, you know, in the ED, if it's quiet, and that's the horrible word that you're not allowed to use in emergency departments, if it's quiet, you, you do get a heightened level of anxiety and just the idea of, well, when is this going to start? So all of the mechanical changes, the geographical changes within the waiting room and moving fast track to different part of the hospital, all of those sorts of things brought this level of anxiety about the, um, you know, the anticipation of what's going to happen. If, if you were to come into my ED with your uh, clinical evidence task force hat on, what advice or messages would you give to ED clinicians, maybe managers or policymakers about sustaining the current state of preparedness uh, in the short and the long term? thinking about the clinician's state of mind as well. Uh, yeah, I guess it's one of those situations where the, the waiting is actually worse than the, the, the doing um, and managing the event. And I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an ED person, but the people um, who I know who do work in ED and ICU thrive <laughs> in that sort of um, um, high adrenaline situation, I guess. I suppose there's a few things that that um, that I think of when I'm thinking about ED in in this sort of situation is that you know, you know ED staff are you know when we're talking about frontline healthcare workers there's no more frontline pretty much than than ED staff and they would be dealing with unknowns the whole time. This is not just for this particular virus, but on everyday occasion, um, you know any particular excuse me, presentation could be harbouring something that they're not familiar with. 
and they would be skilled enough and trained enough to to be able to manage that. So I think it's important to keep. Certainly, COVID's serious; it's a it's a threat, but it also needs to be kept in perspective. It's a respiratory illness. Um, there are plenty of other respiratory illnesses out there as well that are dealt with on a seasonal, daily, whatever basis. And this is not that much different to that situation. Um, some of the collateral issues around dealing with a COVID patient are a little bit different. And, you know, with regards to the isolation, and the PPE, but these are all, you know, this is all knowledge and experience that, that I would assume that, that ED um, clinicians clinicians would have. Yeah, so uh, training for the big one, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, with that, um, so a lot of emergency departments have changed the physical environment of the emergency department. They split it into respiratory, non-respiratory cases. There are different um, patient flow uh, processes in most of the emergency departments. Um, but it comes down to, you know, something as simple as completely reorganising the waiting room and, and where people wait. Um, this is a bit of a tricky question and I didn't um, prep you for this, but when would you foresee, given that Victoria at the moment is seeing a, a slight bump in, in new cases, when would you see or when would you predict that perhaps we could start dismantling some of these changes that we've made? Um, it's... Interesting, on the radio this morning, Cliff, I, um, there was a report that um, one of the hospital's um, departments, emergency departments, was currently undergoing renovation and subsequently um, their waiting room um, area, waiting area for, for patients being triaged, was unable to maintain that 1.5 metre um, physical distance. And there was some... Uh, person giving an editorial about that. Look, to be honest, it's if there's one thing that we're all not great at, it's predicting the future. And, you know, at the start of the year, um, you know, we were predicting huge influx of, of hospital admissions and ICU, we were wrong. So that that's a good thing. Um, to know, uh, the, I think the honest truth is that um, we will need to be thinking about um, this new normal for quite some time. A vaccine in Australia is at least a year away, most likely longer. Um, we don't have infection rate to offer herd immunity and that's not a good idea to, to go down that route anyhow. So the, the best way that we can manage this virus is through social distancing and you know that needs to be considered in a workplace as well. Um, what we know infections uh, or clusters both in Australia and outside of Australia in relation to healthcare facilities is there is staff to staff transmission in clinical settings because healthcare work um, you need to get close to your colleague to to deliver healthcare work so there's very difficult to practice social distancing um, on a regular basis in the usual clinical environment um, so that's all that's going to continue to be a challenge uh, but we still need to continue to, to, to give that message out of social distancing is our, is our best um, preventative intervention. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. The, um, 
when I first started working in emergency departments, um, I used to wonder why emergency department waiting rooms were so small. And there was a thought that if you make them smaller, you'll have less people coming in and, you know, prepared to wait, which obviously in hindsight is a ridiculous notion um, because people don't wake up in the morning and say, right, I'd like to spend the next eight hours sitting waiting in a waiting room. Um, everybody who comes to an emergency department truly believes that they need to be there. But nobody could predict that we would actually need to have this distance mm. between each individual uh, patient waiting to be seen. Um, at the time of recording this, and you alluded to this just before, Victoria's experienced, I guess, not an unexpected um, increase in new cases of the disease, um, while other states kind of remain relatively stable, although Queensland has seen a little bump um, in the last few days as well. Can you tell us about this and what it means to EDs uh, especially those serving some of the affected areas in, for example, Greater Melbourne, like the Hume District, Casey, Brimbank, Brimbank, sorry, um, Moreland, um, Cardinia, and Darabin. Um, what sort of difference should we be thinking about? What sort of uh, things should we be thinking about just in the immediate? Well, I guess. Um what we're seeing is a higher prevalence of people with COVID in these populations um, that you've in those areas that you've just mentioned. So it increases the likelihood, I guess, of an incidental contact um, with somebody with COVID and a presentation to a department of somebody with COVID. Um, and it's not always going to be uh, the patient who's coughing and sneezing and spluttering. It could well be the pre-symptomatic or the asymptomatic COVID carrier. So it probably it means you need to have uh, slightly um, higher uh, an acute alertness for the potential for these people who are presenting um, that they may have COVID as opposed to the areas outside of of those um, of those suburbs. Um, and I guess there's also this, um, I, I'm not sure you'd probably be more familiar with me, but people, I believe, tended to stay away from emergency departments as well when there were lots of uh, higher numbers of cases as well. So that could also be something that, that these departments experience in, in those areas. Yeah, and, and certainly that was a, a real concern. Um, people were concerned about the usual day-to-day -day business um, when we started to see reduced numbers. And certainly there's you know, a, a degree of evidence showing that people did have STEMIs and people did have strokes and um, thought they should stay away for whatever reason, whether that was because they didn't want to burden the healthcare sector or whether it was you know, self-protective and they thought they might get the disease itself. Um, yeah, look, it's really interesting and it, it, it's, um, it's probably something by the time this podcast's released that will have evolved one way or the other. It'll either have um, – and there's lots of political talk at the moment around um, why these areas became um, such – hotspots to use, you know, for the want of a better word. Um, and probably it's not within the purview of this podcast to, to get into that. Um, without being too politically minded or uh, what what are your thoughts on um, this? Was Is this exactly what we expected to see um, or 
Is it something, was there something missed? Well, I think, um, you know, you always need to be aware of the second wave. And we're talking about the flat in the curve, which was what we did, but there was always talk about we need to make sure we don't have a second wave, but we are seeing a second wave. And I think what's really interesting um, from the clusters that we're seeing in Melbourne um, was a number of things. Um, we do have more, we do, we do have a lot of returning international travels um, with, with COVID. So they get quarantined in hotels. So really on a day-to-day -day basis, you could exclude them from the numbers because we knew that that's, that's why we're, we're quarantining them. The, the other interesting thing I think is that there has been um, family-related, family-associated clusters. And it seems to be obvious now that there are, um, there's some of this spread could be due to some cultural and linguistic issues that we perhaps we, we haven't relayed our messages clearly enough to these, to these um, areas. And I think that's really gonna be a really important learning once we get a chance to look back and reflect on what we did and what we didn't do is that perhaps we didn't engage with these um, cultural areas uh, appropriately when it comes to prevention and, um, and messaging um, and getting sources, getting the accurate sources of information to these areas. Um, uh, so I think that's, that's a really interesting thing that, that's going to come out of, of these, these Melbourne clusters. So there's a couple of things there, um, and just on the last point that you made, um, you don't really know, so from an emergency department's perspective, you don't really know how your changes and the things you've implemented are going to work until you put them into, use them in anger, and um, then you start to see where the, the cracks in the in your in your planning and your processes are, and that probably gave a lot of my colleagues, uh, that's where most of their anxiety came from, you know, we've done all of this, but is it actually going to work when when we see uh, a huge amount of people, and, and it's similar with uh, the messaging that went out and issues like this. Um, I guess coming back to the um, idea of being prepared, um, are there any – so what with what we know now with uh, that perhaps there was some um, – not negligence isn't the right word, but over um, – overlooking how cold people were messaged. Um, do you have a clear idea now what you what we, we should do differently going forward? No, I don't. And I think that's a gap. And I think um, it's certainly at the very least and as a starting point, we need to engage leaders or champions in those areas to, to advise and to consult um, as to how we can address that, those issues in the future. Um, and look whether or not it's that's unique to Melbourne. I'm not sure if we're any more multicultural than any other state or, or city. Uh, and but I think you know certainly as a country, um, it's it's a big area that we need to address. Um, the other point that you made just before was around um, this being the second wave, and that we were expecting a second wave. Um, thinking back to Phil a few months ago, when you were thinking about the second wave. Is this what it looked like or did it look worse? 
Uh, no, I think that's the second wave tends to be smaller um, than you know, here. Yeah, not that we can call on any COVID-related <laughs> yeah. experiences, but um, just in outbreaks generally, second waves tend to be smaller. Um, and, you know, hopefully with the second wave, we've learned a lot and we know what we need to do and we know how to, to manage it. And I think that's, you know, at some stage, I, I expect that it will turn around without having huge numbers um, because we know we have a better sense of what we're doing and what works. What about next year and the year after um, is the thinking that we're going to see third fourth waves I mean this is obviously going to come back again um, are those waves less or more um, alarming probably of a similar status again it's really hard to predict but I guess what we need to keep in mind is that um, most people most of the Australian population has not had the infection, so we remain a highly vulnerable population. So it's, you know, what, what would be expected to see, or the most likely um, scenario would be, is to have these continuous clusters related to each other, um, uh, bubbling along, and that, that could go on for, for years ahead um, until we get a vaccine, because we, we still do have a, a very vulnerable population. the impossible predictions that I've asked you to make. Um, there's been, an, I guess, an overwhelming amount of advice and aggregated resources and guidelines thrown at um, emergency department workers and healthcare workers as as a whole in the last few months. Um, some, sometimes just keeping up with your own network's policies and procedures, it, it feels like a full-time job, right? Um, what are the key areas that ED nurses, doctors, allied staff, the clerical staff, all of the people that work in an emergency department um, should focus their efforts on in staying on top of? That's a really um, good question, Cliff, and it's a, it's a big issue. And, you know, um, I suppose from my work, my side is that I've been involved in the ex infection control expert group who have been responsible for putting together infection prevention guidelines for the Commonwealth Government. And um, it sounds like a reasonably simple thing to do, but uh, one of the, the issues is that we have huge numbers of colleges and associations and organisations, emergency this, intensive care that, et cetera, et cetera, nursing, medical, the whole gamut who all understandably want to protect their own members. So they have a vested interest, I guess. And so um, often, I mean, the typical scenario was that a guideline would be disseminated and published and uh, we would get 30 different responses back saying, this is different, contrary to what we are advising from our college or from our association, you know, you need to change your guidelines sort of thing. Um, and so, there was, because of that, um, there was a lot of mixed messages. There were our guidelines, there were state guidelines, there were that college's guidelines, etc., etc. So, as a healthcare worker, you know, you turn up to this your shift and you've 
so you know what's the latest with the guidelines and depends who you wanted to listen to and look so I'm sort of over exaggerating I guess just to make the point because they didn't differ that much and often with the recommendations and guidelines they were all right some were just went a little bit further than was perhaps necessary um, and I, from the Commonwealth's point of view we we're always very wary to try to keep things to a minimum to because we're also very conscious of the stockpile. Usually it was around PPE, um, the, the, the availability of PPE, um, and to make sure that when it was used, it was used appropriately. So that challenge, I don't know what the answer to that challenge is. Um, we do, you know, I'm, I do sit on the, the COVID task force, which is a, a group who every day they scan the latest evidence to, um, to formulate recommendations, evidence-based guidelines. And um, you know, this, is a, this is a moving beast. And, and that's the other problem, I think, with recommendations guidelines is that we, they, they do update as more information comes to light. And so what we did yesterday perhaps was okay yesterday, but now we know something different and we need to change our practices. So there's that moving beast, there's an overwhelming number of inf uh, amount of information and it's, it's, we have a lot of empathy for, for the healthcare workers. So I guess my advice is to, to, um, to really ensure that you are confident in what you're doing and um, that uh, you do um, default to the evidence to, to guide your practice. If you can wiggle your way through yeah. all of the the milieu. yeah, no, um, and the task force we that my college, the College of Emergency mm. Nursing Australasia, have um, recently joined that task yes. force, and that that is just amazing work that's coming out of that. And we see updates coming from that, which actually for me seem to be the updates that come out of the task force seem to be my go-to place, which is I guess what uh, your your main aim was to get people going straight to there, straight yeah, to those. Yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the task force work is, is often about treatments, um, but they, they do have also um, recommendations with in infection prevention implications. And the task force does work with ICAG, the Infection Control Expert Group, um, making sure that there is consistency. I've got a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, and um, not reluctant, but um, I'm asking this question in a very gentle <laughs> way. Uh, it's not an accusatory way. It's just a, a, a question. Um, so moving slightly away from the emergency department just for a moment, we're seeing several uh, conflicting messages around the world from researchers around um, the use of face masks by the public in, in the community um, and the infection control expert group for COVID-19 um, advise um, on your website uh, that the use of uh, face masks in the community is not, not recommended. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the reasons behind this recommendation? Sure. So. This is a recommendation that's informed by evidence and informed largely by the epidemiology of the day. So we need to take into account, and we can't compare what we're doing here as to what's happening in the US or the UK or in Italy, Brazil, um, where the prevalence of people in the community with COVID is high. 
Despite a second wave that we're seeing in Victoria, the prevalence of the infection in the community remains very low. And so um, that's why we are continuing to say um, it's not recommended that face masks, face masks will offer any great protection at the moment. If tomorrow a large proportion of our population were found to have the infection, then that recommendation would change and we would start, start saying, start wearing masks. Um, but at the moment, um, the best defence is distance. Um, and even if you do, so, and there's a couple of things with masks in public anyhow. I'm sure you have seen and we've all seen um, footage on the news of people in public wearing their masks under their chin or under the top of their head or hanging off one ear, which is common and it's extraordinarily common, which, so there is no point in wearing that mask. Second thing about masks is that we need to remember um, it's not only droplet spray, but it, um, you can pick up COVID from touching contaminated surfaces. So it's, it's, studies have shown that we touch our faces around about 25 to 30 times an hour and everybody does it the whole time. I was doing it just now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, not just, that's also not mentioning the pen that we touch and put in our mouth and all that sort of stuff too. When we wear a mask, we touch our face even more often. Yep. And that's certainly what I've seen in the clinical setting. Yeah, yep. exactly. So if your hands are contaminated or your mask is contaminated from the outside, then you're just contaminating yourself further. So the risk of self-contamination when you're wearing a mask increases because of that. Um, and the third reason we're not keen on masks is, is it promotes a, a false sense of security. Masks alone will not work. They're just one of the tools. So even when you're wearing a mask, you still need to practice hand hygiene and you still need to socially distance. If you wear a mask, but you don't socially distance and you don't hand hygiene, you will still get the infection in, the, in that high prevalent population. So there's a number, those messages, unfortunately there are some experts out there who aren't delivering those messages at the same intensity. Um, but that's why, that's the reasoning behind our um, recommendation at the moment. Yeah, no, completely understand. And um, the same, I guess, goes for um, uh, gloves. I've seen people in the community wearing gloves, uh, thinking that that's the be all and end all um, and that they're completely safe just because they're wearing them. So I guess um, if we did need to, and your recommendations did flex with to, you know, to match uh, what we're seeing with the virus in, in Australia and New Zealand, it would be around um, informing people that actually you don't have this security. These are the things you need to be highly aware of. And if we can't in the clinical setting get that right, well, you know, we've got a bit of work to do with, with getting the public sort of informed about that as well. Phil, we're nearly there. Um, finally, many of my colleagues over the last 30 odd years have either had a question or an interest or a pet peeve um, about some aspect of patient care in the emergency department or even the system um, in terms of its frailties. Um, most of the time, um, nurses, doctors don't have the time, the energy or indeed the experience to figure out how to answer these questions, how to research these questions, how to scratch that itch about, you know, what it is that they're seeing that they think should be improved. If a um, 
27-year-old Cliff um, working at the Austin Emergency Department came to you for advice about where to start. What would you tell me? So that's last year, Cliff, was it? Yeah, exactly. Um, So what would I tell you about managing these types of infections? Sorry, I probably didn't uh, phrase the question quite as well as I thought I'd written it down. Um, Where would you tell somebody to go? How would you guide somebody to get started in research? So you've been researching for a very long time. Most uh, clinicians just don't have the time or the energy. So if they did want to get started in research or even to make a change in clinical practice, which is kind of what we're all about, right, with research, um, what what advice would you give them? How would you tell them to get going? Um, I guess the first thing I want to do is, is acknowledge that not everybody is interested in research and not every clinician uh, is going to make a good researcher. And, you know, I look back on my career now and I think I'm a much better researcher than I was a clinician. Uh, so I think that we need to acknowledge that. But, you know, one of the um, joys, I guess, in my role in dealing with clinicians is that you do get these people who are really good thinkers and um, they ask fantastic questions and questions that only people who work in the clinical area would come up with and I certainly wouldn't have because I'm so distanced from that now Um, and some really bright minds and so I think you know when when that sort of um, situation presents you you know do try to guide them into thinking about how what sort of um, what sort of work would need to be done to answer those questions? How would we test these these questions out? Um, and it's also, you know, not not all those people also uh, that they, they they probably do need some training into how to start thinking critically about how how they can test certain um, questions out. So it's about I think not forcing but encouraging people towards these areas that and highlighting what research can actually do and how it can help them on a day-to-day basis not just them but also their colleagues and ultimately patient care as well Um, and uh, i think mentoring is a really um, important part of that and collaboration as well Um, because you know it's it's rare or it's rare that you one person's going to have the answer or can come up with all the all the solutions so i think that team collaboration the mentoring and um, you know getting them to just stretch their thinking a little bit um, but you, usually these these people are really good thinkers and uh, come up with the best questions and so they just need a bit of guidance yeah look I, I think you mentioned to me it was a few months ago that's probably six months ago now time seems to have warped into a into a strange beast but you mentioned to me and it was something that sat with me as well I felt the exact same is that you weren't good at coming up with ideas Um, and I'm certainly not I tend to swipe other people's ideas Um, and it feels to me what you're saying is from a research point of view that collaboration and that stuff is we, we really need to be sitting in the clinical area and listening to what people if you sit in a meeting with four emergency care nurse clinical nurse educators sorry um you'll get four ideas for um some improvement that you can make same if you sat in a nurse unit manager meeting or a, a ed director meeting um so that's certainly where 
I'm, you know, trying to focus my energy is being there and listening and hearing what people have to say because it's a good five years since mm. I put my hands on a patient. Mm. Um, uh, th- that's not quite true. I did some uh, clinical work a, a few months ago, but, you know, in uh, since I was match fit, I yeah. guess, in, yeah. in the clinical setting. Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing is at researchers, it's easy to come up with an answer or solution in the laboratory or in a, you know, theatre or, or wherever. But um, the, real, the fact is, particularly with infection prevention, some of the best infection prevention interventions have failed because they've failed to take into account the real life implementation of that in, you know, in different settings. So it's really important to engage, for us researchers, to engage with the clinicians. Yeah, and uh, yeah, definitely. Um, Phil, I think that's probably where we can uh, tail off. That's a really nice way to finish off. Did you have anything that you want to spruik that you are doing currently that's uh, taking up all of your cognitive bandwidth that's really <laughs> important to you at the moment that you, with the listeners would like to hear about? Uh, I, I guess, you know, um, the, the cognitive bandwidth is pretty much full of COVID at the moment and that's not a complaint. Good for business. <laughs> Look, it is good and you know we're we're all busy um but um you know we also appreciate the fact that a lot of people are suffering and you know are doing it hard as well so we try to make the most of of what we're doing and 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 learn from this so there's a couple of things that we're looking at and one of them is um, doing some work with healthcare workers understanding how the whole covid experience has affected them and what learnings we can we can um, we can get moving take take moving forward in, to prepare for the next for the next one. The other the other area that we're working on as well is that you know um, it's in, there's been a massive acceleration of infection prevention literacy, not only in healthcare workers but also in in the community. And um, whereas you know 12 months ago we struggled to convince certain parts of the uh, healthcare fraternity to perform hand hygiene. Now it's a given uh, and everybody's talking about it and every everybody's doing it. So we're sort of a little bit thankful for, for some things. But what we're curious to know is if all these, you know, a lot of the preventative interventions that we have for COVID should prevent a lot of inf- other infections, your noroviruses, your influenza, your other types of infection. So we're also uh, looking at exploring um, what sort of effect these interventions for COVID has had on other healthcare associated infections too, because uh, suddenly, you know, we're in the spotlight and uh, we're, we're keen to try and understand how, what impact that's had. That's a, a really good way to finish off, Phil. I feel like um, six months from now, Phil should come back and uh, reflect on what um, July Phil said or January of uh, June Phil said so we'd love to have you back on if you wanted to uh, come back in say six to eight months and um, just get a few updates from you. Thanks Cliff as long as I'm not held accountable for any <laughs> predictions that I've made. <laughs> no not at all. Hey Phil thanks very much for being on This Emergency Life. Thanks very much to Phil Russo. Um, if you want to hear more from Phil, he's a pretty prolific Twitterer. He can be found over at, at PLR underscore AUS. You've been listening to This Emergency Life. 
just a reminder that the opinions shared on this show don't necessarily represent those of Cena or our workplaces. And we'll see you all next time on This Emergency Life. <laughs>